think this is a system, the symbiotic evolution that's required, not just blaming government for it. I think this is going to be a new theory of value. New... Look, necessity is really powerful. Necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is on the table. And I think there's vast amounts of value that's going to be constructed or vast amounts of risks and liabilities that can be constructed if we don't do it. And that's the urgency that we have to operationalize. Hello everyone and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, Event Director, FutureBuild, and co-host Dr. Oliver Jones, Research Director, Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Hello and welcome to FutureX. My name is Martin Hearn and I'm Event Director at FutureBuild and I am once again joined by Dr. Oliver Jones at Rider Architecture. Oliver, this week we have got a stellar guest. and I know I always say that, but truly this person absolutely blew my mind. Mate, India has blown my mind numerous times. I think I first came across India probably about two years ago. Um, could not stop thinking about the things that Indy talked about at the time. And for me, I've followed everything that's come from Indian Dark Matter Labs ever since. I think these guys are on the cutting edge of how we need to really start to restructure uh, things in order to meet the 2050 goals and just create a better society, to be quite honest with you. Um, the stuff that's coming out of their labs is, in, is insanely exciting. It's really next level in terms of the way they're thinking about things. And I was absolutely over the moon to get Indy on the podcast because he is such a nice bloke. He has such a breadth of knowledge. And again, I didn't sleep for about 24 hours after speaking to him because the ideas that are flowing out of this guy and that are coming out of Dark Matter Labs are incredibly exciting. Absolutely. You know, you can sum him up really by calling him a true visionary because he's just thinking on a different plane uh, to anyone I've ever spoke to. And for those people that don't know who Indy Johar is, um, he was he's an architect. He was co-founder of Project Zero Zero. He is the founder of Dark Matters. Um, he worked with the Wiki House. He's been part of Blocks Hub. He's on various Reba trustee and boards. He's an extremely busy man, extremely connected. And yeah, just coming out with some ideas and work that will just literally blow your mind. Well, I was going to try and summarize the things that we talked to Indy about. But in actual fact, it's probably almost impossible to do in the time that we've got. So if you want to know what it's about, you're just going to have to give it a listen. But you won't be disappointed. So let's give it a listen. Hey, Andy, thanks for joining us, mate. Absolute pleasure, always. I'll Glad tell you what, to be it, here. It, it's going to be exciting having you as a guest on the panel at the 100-year plan at Future Build, but we've got a lot to discuss before that, so maybe let's loop back around to that. For the listeners, it would be wonderful if we could just give them a bit of a flavor of, of who you are, where you came from, what you're about. So, name's Indy Johar. I trained as an architect, but in the course of doing architecture early on, I finally realized the future was not going to be built through consulting. And architecture is a consulting framework. It had to be built by actually prototyping, making things. So really with people like Melissa Me got involved in building stuff like the Bristol Urban Beach to uh, with people like Jonathan Robinson, building the Impact Hub Network, to writing the book, Compendium for the Civic Economy, to building open source furniture, open desk to WikiHouse, open source housing. And really what we were focused on was how do you radically democratize the city? Not democratize in terms of vote, but how do you make 
the city in a radically democratic way, both in terms of form, function, and the process. And that's really what we've been doing. But about 2015 onwards, started to realize that underneath the democracy of making, there were fundamental questions about how we organize, which were, as architects, designers, if you gave architects the problem of solving the housing crisis, what they tend to do is build ever smaller homes and, and say, look, we can make it cheaper or make it smaller. And actually what you start to realize the fundamental problem of housing perhaps isn't the design of the house, but it's the idea of land value and the idea of who captures land value and who pays for infrastructure and how does infrastructure, social infrastructure priced into systems. And you start to realize there's a whole problem systemically in property rights and how they're structured and who extracts land. And I think those are the questions that really start to intrigue us. So that's where Dark Matter Labs was born. We're now seven years old. There's about 60 of us. We're a not-for-profit. The team is full of lawyers, accountants, coders, designers. Yeah, so we're a polymathic team, geographers. And we're really looking at those questions of the dark matter underneath our built environment and how do you reimagine it in radical ways. Just take us through some of the things that you've been working on recently. Give us a bit of a flavor. So a lot of the work that we're doing, working on is what we call civic goods. How does a house is conceived as a private good, but actually if you look at a house in terms of the garden and its ecological relationship or the, the watershed of the house or effectively the materials of the house and the impacts it has or effectively the social impacts of bad housing, you start to realize a house is not just a private good, it's a relational good, it's a thing that exists in an entire so a lot of the work that we're doing is actually looking at this idea of the entangled economy. We did some work around the highlight in New York, which cost 174 billion to build, but generated 3.04 billion of uplift value in land. So what we started to figure out was that actually what we've been seeing is the greatest enclosure of public and civic wealth into private hands in the last 50 years. It's a mass privatization of public goods in, indirectly. And what we've been looking at is effectively, how do you rebuild this new civic economy, whether it's through the lens of a house or even reimagining a camera, a surveillance camera in a radically new way, all the way through to tree canopy of a city or the whole city retrofit of a city, all the way through to a river system. And how do you reimagine super, super scale ecological systems and civic goods, which have multiple forms. And we're looking at different ways of going from single point ownership models to multi-stakeholder relationship models, to self-sovereign and to digitally self-sovereign systems. And how do you build into that worldview? So a lot of our work is around demonstration of these things, looking at the system innovations, and then looking at how do you create the demand of the organizational infrastructures, like a carbon treasury to be able to actually for cities to make the right decisions around these things. So what we're looking at the supply demand side of that stuff yeah, and making that happen. And in terms of the challenges that you see ahead, I know you've spoken quite passionately about the challenge that we're facing. Can you give us a, a tour through those challenges? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge just in relationship to this conversation is that if we, let's start here, if we were to take national carbon budgets seriously, which we have to, because they are actually a legally binding instrument. There is no new build housing in the UK. There is no future build. Be bureaucratic. There is no build in the future. <laughs> Tell Martin. And, and, <laughs> no, but I, I think this is really important because I think we've created a mythos of there being 300,000 homes a year being built. The reality is we can probably afford next to zero 
maybe if it's extraordinary housing, you get to 10,000, but you don't get significantly anywhere close. And people like Chris Brown, who built Igloo, have acknowledged that and stepped out of development because of that reality. So, like, when you do the numbers, you start to realize we're operating into a completely different future. So we do not have the material economy over the next 20 years, I would say. It's not forever, but there is a period we don't. And that's because we don't have the energy infrastructure to mine the materials to do the work. And we don't have the demographics in terms of labor forces to do that work. We were part of looking at large-scale retrofit, which we have been, but we don't actually have the material economy, the hydrocarbons to mine the materials to, to do the labor work, to do the retrofit in the way that people are talking. So there are fundamentals that are in challenging to all the kind of rhetoric of, of how we build spatial justice by building new homes. Now that opens up a really radical question is what is spatial justice when you don't have basically 300,000 homes coming to the market every year? How do you build an equitable future when you don't have that additionality? And that I think is the innovation space that's really going to become really critical. And this is not, to, this is to also recognize over the last, I don't know, 30 years, so whatever, yeah, 40 years, we've had the greatest investment in our material economy in probably the UK for a long time. We, if you look at development rates, commercial development rates, all of that stuff, large-scale renewal, we've had significant material pouring into rebuilding of the UK in many formats. That was perhaps the wisest thing we could have done because that was the cheapest hydrocarbon, cheapest material economy we're going to have for the next 40 years. So the question of the next 40 years is radically different. Now, why I say 40 is it's not an infinite reality. So if we don't all kill ourselves as a human species, which is quite likely as we go into scarcity, the threat of war with geopolitical fragmentation, bullshit theories of autonomy will, start, will create the spaces of conflict. Now, if we can bypass that space of conflict, we do have technologies where the small modular reactors will come forth quickly, but mass global adoption will take time and the security infrastructure to build that will take time. You do have actually fusion perhaps coming to the bear in that way. So we do get energy sources, storage sources do become more available. Energy storage mechanisms do become a surgical mining does become possible on biomass recorrection in terms of, you know, all moving to veganism. So we reduce land for food uses and we increase actually biomass capacity uh, for timber and other production becomes rebalanced over that period. So there is a systemic energy material biolandscape transformation we're in the middle of. And I think the fundamentals are just being largely ignored and all the way we're just rhetorically just moving forward. And it's not that future and it's coming to an end very quickly. And in a way, inflation is not monetary inflation. Inflation is actually a resource limitation driven inflation. There are planetary limits that are starting to come into effect. Now those are, no, those are not finite or infinite in terms of control, but there is a period to which we will go through that. And I think that's worth us recognizing. And I guess this falls into the discussion that we've been having around this one, the idea of the 100 year plan. And the reason why I say 100 years, because it's more of a vision in terms of what's out there, what are we aiming for? And it has to be beyond our own lifetime. But that rhetoric that you mentioned is so familiar in terms of, we seem to be going through phases of defining a problem or a challenge, redefining the problem or the challenge, slightly shifting from a government perspective saying, let's wait for industry to provide a solution while industry waits for government to provide a roadmap. And then when we get close to making some moves in that direction, and albeit the wrong direction, as you've outlined there, we then start to define and redefine something closely related to the topic that we were talking about two years ago. So we were, we jump from net zero, we jump to retrofit, we jump to circularity. 
but there's very little progress made in any of those spaces. And for me, what seems to be happening at the moment is a lot of unhelpful rhetoric builds because we fall back on past behaviors and we start to commercialize our, we commercialize the problem. We make the problem one that only experts can solve, only, only expert consultancy teams can engage with and grapple with. And then we revel in that problem because there's commercial worth to doing it. In terms I, of, I, look, I would totally agree. I would totally agree. And I think there's two aspects of that, which I would just double down on is that there is a lockstep problem here, which is the capabilities that the industry has to offer, not necessarily the capabilities and the capacities that are required in the 21st century economy. So there's an existential crisis for industry, which is whilst real estate developers are important, they're relevant to the future. And so real estate management in its traditional sense, who gives a shit? Because actually fundamentally it's been about land value appreciation. Very little of it has really been about human outcome driving. Those real estates are going to become deeply kind of slums of the 21st century. Indoor air pollution, light pollution generation, noise pollution generation. I just walked past Hackney Central, right? And there, there are so these blocks of housing built right next to the station. Now that's all fine. And they've got really brilliantly double glazed or triple glazed windows, but actually in summer, how the fuck do you cool the place down? And so they have to open the windows. Like if you open the windows, it means from about five o'clock in the morning till about 12 o'clock at night, there are trains running, which means you've fundamentally destroyed the sleep capacity of children and adults and you've undermined it. And we know somebody who's sleeping, somebody who sleeps next to a busy road, actually you take two to three years worth of your life. So the strategic fucking decisions there are problematic. And I think there's just bullshit going on because that was just all about land value. That did not systemically look at the issues on the table. And it was just about unlocking land value in one very particular way. So I think these things are coming to roost. And I think there's a capability problem of industry. And there's a kind of what I would call an illusion problem of government has to almost create the illusion right now of everything will be fine. And actually what we have to start to recognize is there's a systemic unwind on the table of the order of the Marshall Plan, right? Yeah. 68% of businesses, if you price and social environmental costs don't work. So I think this is quite structural. So, so how do we start to make moves to recalibrate? But there's clearly a reckoning and acceptance that certain modes of business, certain types of business are, don't work. There's clearly an acceptance that we are not going to have the skills and the training in place necessary to address this to the deadlines that we've put in place. So what are the next steps indeed? I think for me, the first thing is having an honest debate, right? I think get, pulling ourselves out of the rhetorical compromises that we're constantly locked in. The honesty of the debate, and I don't mind if someone can say, hey guys, we've done the numbers, you can get 20,000 home. Okay, great. We did the numbers, we get to about 19,000 on top, right? But let's have an honest debate yeah. because that allows for actually a recalibrate. Then we have to start to systemically price these issues in. You know, the reason why our economy favors a can of Coke versus a sustainable apple is because a can of Coke externalizes all those costs, healthcare costs, addiction costs, in terms of actually associated carbon, carbon costs, water pollution, all those stuff is outsourced. Whereas a sustainable apple has to insource all those costs. So a sustainable apple is deeply more expensive than a can of Coke. That is a systemic pricing problem because one is externalizing those liabilities. It means the pool of capital always borrows to the can of Coke as opposed to the apple because of what it can do. Now, unless we start to change our pricing infrastructure at a societal level, 
the can of Coke is all we can fund and thereby it becomes a self-terminating mechanism. I use it as an analogy to see what our systemic questions are. So honest conversation, new discourse on pricing, recognizing those things. I think a massive investment in human development. I think this is one of those moments where we're going to have to significantly invest in human development. I think the Tony Blair era of investment was actually just even a blip on the scene of what's required in terms of the transformation of our universities, transformation of our human development cycles. Then I think we have to invest massively in systemic innovation, like we did in the Marshall Plan, or certainly places like Italy did significantly. We have to rebuild our industries in radical new format. And I think that's the level of conversation we need to be having, and that's the level of conversation a new government will need to be having in the next 18 months or so. Otherwise, I think we're just living in a kind of rhetorical bullshit that we've been living for the last five, 10 years. It's not useful. It's not intelligent. It's not smart. And reality is more interesting than any mythos that we can construct. And if we engage with it, it's a real strategic advantage. India, I think one of your challenges is how do we even have that honest debate? Because people are so focused on the now that sometimes this long-term thinking just gets ignored or you know, it, it, will come to, it will come to that when we get to it. How do we start that now and start to address these issues in a way that people can understand? I personally think these issues are no longer long-term. So if you look at food prices, if you look at timber prices, if you look at energy prices, if you look at, these are no longer long-term. This is not. If you're being a responsible business owner and you are not factoring these issues, I'm sorry, shareholders should really be examining you as, a, as an operating business. Because this is a fiduciary responsibility. These trends are knowable, visible, and understandable. And if you haven't factored them in, I think there's a real question to be asked about your leadership. If a developer, a strategic developer, isn't looking at the national carbon budgets and saying, what is our plan with regards to this? And hasn't got an inherent carbon treasury function running, just some of the things that we're starting to build. I think they've got real problems. So for me, this is no longer a future, future scenario work. This stuff is on our balance sheet. It's coming at us. The risks are already material. They're not, no longer hypothetical risks. Challenge appears that we're, not, we're just not appreciating the scale and complexity of the problem in its broadest sense, in that there's a series of unintended consequences that are occurring, at least from the way I can see the problem, from all parties' actions, is resulting in a massive tangle of other un unintended consequences because we weren't appreciating the holistic complexity of the challenge that really is on our doorstep, as, uh, as you say. And a good example of this to me recently is I, I work with a lot of large insur insurance funds who have huge swathes of estate up and down the country, but they are jettisoning um, big parts of their portfolio based on how readily they could be retrofit to meet a net zero future. Right, look, the focus is on the wrong thing here. The, you, you, it, it is, as a very small problem, you're not viewing that Victorian factory, which has got 2 million bricks in it, as a material bank as something that has inherently far more in the material that's embodied in it than saying, oh, it, it, it's just too difficult to insulate and put triple glazing in. And that's because our balance sheets are problematic. So if, if developers, and this is again a conversation we're in the middle of, if developers turned around and had a material balance sheet and understood the material balance sheet as a key part of their asset base, they would start to have different value compositions. And that's really not a difficult thing. It's about recognizing in future terms what it's happening to our material economy and starting to reportion it. Currently, in a way, the use class of a building is more significant in terms of its valuation than its material economy. That's largely been the function, right? So the use value of a building is where most of the value is, and the material economy will shift with it. 
over yeah. this period. And that's a real issue, real, real strategic revaluation. Arguably, we've been in this space within residential design for quite a long time because we've gone through annual cycles for the last decade of brick shortages. Any house builder, any mass house builder knows all about these problems and challenges in the supply chain. Every one of them knows that there's thousands and thousands of bricks to be had if we just reduce it to the brick conversation in our existing buildings and our existing material banks. But cultures and behaviors of saying, oh, they're just too difficult to clean up. What really gets me in that mentality is that actually there's absolutely no appreciation at currently, I think it's slightly changing, for the social and natural and environmental costs of mining those raw materials and creating new bricks. That's, oh, there'll always be new bricks. There probably won't be. Yeah, I agree with you. I suppose I want to take it out of the cultural discourse of appreciating that value to turning it into a balance sheet function, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to have, why don't you be nice to develop the conversations? Why don't you become a little bit nicer? Because it doesn't work. That's not a systemic change. I think what we have to do is change the theory of balance sheets of buildings. We have to re-examine how these, I think unless we bury it into our accounting frameworks of value, this stuff just becomes rhetorical. So I think there is systemic transformation required. I think every developer should be running a carbon treasury across their assets as a key part of that management function, asset management function in an integrated way. So should every pension fund. Now, so these are the sort of things that we're, we're currently exploring something with one city to explore building that integrated carbon treasury model, but because you need these instruments. So without these structural decision-making instruments, I don't think we can make the right decisions. And that's, I think, a key part of the story. Hi, Martin. Sorry. Indy, what role does regulations have to play here? Because we saw this with the zero carbon homes that house builders would build up to a code until the very last minute until they have to switch. Oliver, we spoke to Johan and Tepio, and he was talking about the developers still fitting in gas boilers right until that deadline of when they have to switch. What roles do regulations have to play and how do we move this forward? I, I think regulations have a role to play. I think that, I think the current problem that we've got is re any form of higher regulation is going to massively systemically increase costs of production to the point that it's not viable. And what that means is that systemically drives, I would say, a corruptive behavior. So regulation ups the cost and people try to get past the regulation in any form of, I'm using the word corruptive in its broader sense, I get out the spirit of the legislation that's required. Now, that I think is a systemic problem that as a society, as a whole society, we have a systemic structural issue that we are no longer in net terms, creating surplus energy in uh, civilizational terms. We have an energy deficit emerging. And that means corruptive behaviors become the natural source of organizing because you can't cover the inherent cost in the system. So yes, regulation has a role to play, but I don't think it's a traditional ratcheting up model that's going to be sufficient. I think we have to think systemically about a new theory of value to which regulation can then structure in new ways and new ways of building that responsibility in new format. So I think it's not the traditional ratcheting up. It won't work. It'll just drive more corruptive behaviors and we don't have the enforcement mechanisms to drive that. I think this requires a new theory of value and then a new theory of regulation with that. And that has to be done in an integral way. So yes, so I just want to change the shift of the conversation slightly, but it's totally related in terms of, do you think that the, if we start to talk about the circular economy or moving towards circularity sure. and more resilience, local resilience, do you think there is a need to move away from, and do you think that the problem lies with centralization. Do we need to move away towards a decentralized 
more local material production, more local vernacular in terms of materials. So Yorkshire, North Yorkshire have quite an exciting plan in terms of the bioeconomy that's starting to take shape in terms of how can they best use their agricultural space? How can they best use their coastline and the acres and acres of new seaweed farming that's being developed? And is there a macroalgae microeconomy that can be spun out into something that can really start to service the resilience of that region? So it's just your thoughts on that centralized, decentralized move towards study. So the biomaterial or the kind of bioregional view is going to be fundamental, both in terms of actually, yes, the material economy, but also in terms of actually food systems. I think the food economy that we build and also in terms of water, flooding risk, strategic flooding risk, and in terms of local energy production. But that will sit in a global planetary information economy, right? And that will sit in actually a rare, almost certainly a rare planetary economy. So I think one of the things I find we just need to be really nuanced about this. Yes, we're going to have to massively create new forms of decentralized capabilities at certain levels. We're also going to have to create new forms of planetary access and supply chain simultaneously. So I think it's a simultaneous and at a developmental level, you and I could be sitting across the planet right now and being having this conversation. So at another level, we will still be planetary organisms at a carbon level, it, you know, Yorkshire solves its carbon problem. If Nigeria doesn't, we're all dead. Yeah. So we also start to have to understand that there's a planetary relationship. So my slight nuance here is that it, we're more and more talking about, say, what is a planetary Yorkshire? So Yorkshire looks at itself, but in relationship to its metabolic relationships at a planetary scale. So it doesn't become a red line boundary problem because it isn't a red line boundary problem. It never will be. Yorkshire yeah. is massively ingrained into a planetary development, planetary metabolic flows. So governance no longer can be red line boundary. It has to look at your metabolic flows and actually govern those relationships and co-develop those relationships in really healthy ways. So I think you're absolutely right. Massive shift in the bioregional landscape. I think we have to have nuanced language around this in a new way. Otherwise there's a risk. And this is the risk I'm trying to hold back is there's a kind of mist of localism. Mm. A myth that we can solve this by putting a little boundary around a little tower and we're going to just be fine. And I guarantee you, we won't be fine yeah. because nothing, the screen that we're on, the clothes that we're wearing, the glasses that we wear, the watches that we carry, none of that can be produced in Yorkshire. Yeah. And I think unless we understand this local global relationship in a new way, in a sort of planetary relationship, there's a myth of localism that I think will lead us to, in extreme senses, a myth of autonomy. We can be autonomous, which is not real, and thereby the myth of war as a net zero sum game. And I think there's a strategic risk here that we as advocates of ideas need to create the right frames that host this language properly and not get sucked into a myth that localism as a solution. So one of the things to follow on from that, and going back to the materials and the availability of materials over the next 40 years, it would appear that although some plans seem sensible on the surface, that they could be seen as quite punitive. For instance, the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism, you know, it, you start to look at that and the way that it is intentionally going to be rolled out across Europe for more and more products. And on the surface of it, it seems illogical. It seems a sensible approach to take. Let's support what's going on within Europe. Let's, let's build our capabilities, our capacity, our, and make sure that the material that we are buying is green. But the counter to that is that it's exclusive as well, and it's not a planetary approach. It, it, it's not going to make a difference, as you've said, if, if China or Nigeria are not part of the solution. 
I would agree. My intuition would be, so from a UK perspective for a moment, I think I would like the UK to open up its borders for anyone that actually fully complies to UK regulations. So labor and materials and regulatory frameworks. So I would say that we should digitize our regulatory frameworks, open up our relationship and thereby build that demand and supply capacity, but they have to provide the labor as well. So it's not just material economy, it's not just material goods. And that allows for a fair level field of innovation. And I think we're going to have to talk about these entanglements of material formats and be able to drive them. But I agree with you. I think the kind of autonomous plan, I can see why it's been done. It's about economic advantage. And I understand that in terms of sequencing, but I think there are systemic issues that I think we have to recognize that unless we all make this transition, this is why this is a class transformation problem. If Europe makes a transformation, but actually the big economies in the global South don't remember by 2070, most of the tropics become un uninhabitable at the current rate, uninhabitable. That's billions of people on the move or not survive. So actually we have to make, and any risk of that isn't just about those billions of people. It's almost certainly a risk of global war and bioterrorism and other things. So don't worry about the, don't think they're isolated because when, if that goes that badly wrong, there'll be contagion effects on a planetary scale. So we have to find a mutually interdependent evolution solution. And that has got to be the strategic aim of any, I think, advanced government has to recognize that interdependence. And that's what I would be deeply advocating for a new UK government to really start to talk about this and materially need this position. And I think it requires leadership to build that position and to be able to actually operationalize in a new way. What forum does this take? I mean, going back to Martin's question before, what for, COP should have been the forum. But it's not, but it should be the forum, but I think a new government in the UK is a really interesting forum. I think a new government in the UK can actually start to deal with the reality of the UK as a result of Brexit has accelerated its position of creative destruction. It's going to have to destroy its existing economy as a function of Brexit, but actually most of that economy was going to get destroyed five, 10 years later anyway. Bemoaning the loss of the car, maybe that's a loss. Maybe this is exactly the time unwind that we need. And what we should be talking about is the next five history and being the centerpiece of the world, the electric devices, I think you see on production So I think also, I think we're in a period of creating construction. I think the UK is positioned well in terms of there is interesting landscape for driving this transition. And I think the timing is almost perfectly right. You've talked in the past and I've very much enjoyed your presentations on this web of value complexity that we don't really appreciate when we're talking about value and particularly enjoyed your ideas around how value interlinks and how that we should embrace the chaos of that value. And I would just wonder whether or not you could tell us a little bit more about how you see value and the broader sense of value within the built environment. There are all these pockets around. We've got social pockets, environmental pockets, biodiversity pockets. What's, what, what's your take on that web of value? Right. So I think a lot of the work that we're doing and what we're seeing is that let's call it from the student's perspective. So everyone has been glorified cities for the last 30 years as the future of television. I think, unfortunately, because of the global fiscal infrastructure, we're seeing the massive centralization of transnational capability because effectively they monetary printing capacity is almost central to transition. So states have become, cities have become fragile instruments in that reality, because actually the fiscal capacity is centralized and the monetary capacities, innovation capacities are centralized. So that means all this heralding of mayors are going to drive the future. Most mayors are now fragile. 
look at the London GLA situation, actually in a transition where they're carrying vast liabilities of the whole economy and the risks of starting to cascade. Poverty, energy, poverty, health, educational risks, infrastructure costs, all slightly cascading cities. So cities are now becoming what I would call the cascading point of failure. Now, that's the dark side of the story. And given what percentage of the population sits and lives in cities, that is what is starting to happen. The other side of that is cities are also the point of what I would call intersectional investment. So if you invest in a tree canopy of a city, you can actually create jobs, yes, but you can also create, actually, you can deal with heat island stress problems, you can deal with flooding risk problems, you can deal with health outcomes, you can deal with community cohesion if you build a network of urban forests. So that piece of infrastructure investment, let's call it infrastructure, creates, or quasi-infrastructure, creates multi-beneficiary systems that improves house values if that's where you want to go. So it improves air quality systemically. So all of these things. So the big question for us is, Physical investments or these sort of these sort of investment models actually create multi-beneficiary systems. And actually what we've got to be able to do is price and value those intersections. We've also got to create capacity for intersectional investment, which means actually building the policy architecture for multiple parts, government and insurance companies to be able to collaborate, collaborate in that value summation. So for me, that and that's just one example you could talk about, I don't know, the sort of the intelligence of a city. So we're doing work around what is the collective intelligence of a city. Intelligence is not, as we've, we've been locked into a very individualistic agenda of my intelligence versus your intelligence or, or master's intelligence. But actually, intelligence is a dialogic process. It's actually about relate intelligence between people. So if we start to think of an asset of the city being intelligence, right, the intelligence of the city, that is a fundamental asset. How do you invest into bid development that asset? Right? That requires a completely different theory of investment. That starts to reimagine what is a public balance sheet. Public balance sheet is now material economy of a city, material treasury of a city. It's the embodied carbon of a city. It's, a, it's the nature-based nature -based infrastructure of a city. All these things start to become critical new balance sheets of the city as a whole. And I think those sorts of things are all intersectional value propositions. I think they're going to be absolutely critical to deal with the cascading risks that cities are going to face. And it requires a new theory of coordination and a new theory of practice between different departments in government, both at the city scale, but also through the stacks of whether. India, I wonder if we have the intelligence and the skill set within our current governments and whether we need to radically rethink about, you know, how that is staffed and because there's a huge amount of thinking skill set needed to make these radical changes. Yeah, I would say respectfully, the last 10 years of government and 12 years of government have been the degradation of capability. UK had probably one of the most advanced capability governments, and we've seen the systemic degradation of that capability. And I think we're going to have to see a sort of, I'm sorry to keep referencing Tony Blair, I do apologize to all the audience, but we're going to have to see that scale of rebuild of our capabilities in a systemic sense. And I think that is going to be necessary. And that capability is not just a government problem, it's an industry problem. I also want to make that super clear. I think this is a system, it's a symbiotic evolution that's required, not just blaming government for it. I think this is going to be a new theory of value. New, look, necessity is really powerful. Necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is on the table. And I think there's vast amounts of value that's going to be constructed or vast amounts of risks and liabilities that can be constructed if we don't do it. And that's the urgency that we have to operationalize. But Martin, totally agree. Yeah. What role is this developments in 
AI blockchain had in you as an organization? Is that something you know you must have to embrace for this large scale thinking and research and analysis? Yeah, totally. So for example, we're using agent-based models to look at, so the tree, the growth aspect of a tree canopy and its impact models as well, but some machine learning capabilities to be able to uh, look at that. Yes, no doubt. I'm, I also think there's a paradigm leap inherent in technology that when you start to look at stuff, so the kind of technology for me is it's systemically transforming our theory of bureaucracy. And I use bureaucracy at a philosophical level, which is our theory of organizing society in different format. So whether it's our theory of like, for example, technology is allowing us to unbundle property rights, reimagine structure of property and unbundling and digitalizing those property rights. It's allowing us to build new forms of accountability for those property rights. It's allowing us to take our land registries and take them from being a registry of property to being a pixel idea of property where every property is, every land is a pixel to which actually has different forms of stakeholder relations. So we're seeing technology opening up the ground landscape for these different worldviews. I think we're talking about self-sovereign. So we can do stuff like self-sovereign buildings in new ways that have never been done before because technology is opening up some of those landscapes. So I, technology is a key component. It, I also think that there's choices with technology. So is technology, are we using technology as a theory of control, as an extension of our control economy, or are we using it, a technology as a theory of ennoblement? And actually, what are we using it for? And there's a risk that we're current, currently extending technology as a theory of control landscape. And we're not doing the human development investment to unlock actually what is a new form of organizing. So for example, the future of a corporation is not a chief executive officer in terms of control oriented leadership. It's not the C-suite of control. It's actually learning. Learning will be the CEO. The chief learning officer will be the CEO because in a complex emergent world, it is the learning that drives the quality assurance. It's the learning that drives the risk, risk mitigation. It's the learning that drives actually dealing with complexity in new ways. So I think both the combination of technologies opening up new human capabilities. I think how we use that technology is fundamental. We're going to have to reimagine our theory of uh, registries, all of that structure, identity, rights, all these frameworks are going to be radically revolutionized. And even I would argue a lot of the work that we're doing, even in terms of how we're using money and monetary production, can be radically reimagined. Got central, central bank digital coins being talked about. I think we're not innovating hard enough on that stuff. It's still a very centralized worldview. What does that look like in 21st century investment models? I think there's landscape opening up, but I think we have to be deeply engaged in those in different ways, rather than just like, like the back of England or the DB do that without actually deep engagement in what that means for future democracy. And Ini, I'm going to roll back a tiny bit because we haven't discussed with our listeners what your ideas around the self-sovereign building are. So you've mentioned it a few times. Can you give us a bit of a breakdown on that, please? Sure. So we're working on something called the free house. You've seen around the world, there's been whole sorts of work done where effectively a river is given legal sovereignty on itself, forests, whether it's in New Zealand or in Canada. And what we've been exploring is what does it look like for actually a building to adopt that similar form? So we move away from theories of ownership of buildings to recognize that build a piece of land has multiple stakeholders, whether it's actually the ecological system or the water rights that flow through it or the material economy that actually has a hundred year cycle to the energy rights of that building, to the bees that go there, all the way through to the insects and the microbiome of that environment. Uh, also the healthcare and social costs that it generates. So when you look at it through a multi-stakeholder perspective, you start to realize a theory of single point ownership doesn't work. So that means that you have to start to reinvent how we govern and steward buildings from this multi-stakeholder perspective. And that takes the point of view from ownership, which is 
dominion and control through a single party's needs to a multi-stakeholder response, which is actually recognized all these things have to flourish in symbiosis. And human flourishment is dependent on the simultaneous flourishing of all these other systems. So a lot of the work is actually then about how do you construct the legal institutions and the financial mechanisms and the theories of stewardship. So if you don't own something, how do you steward something? What are the use rights of a building? How is the material economy owned? What does land ownership going beyond land ownership in that method mean? So we're unbundling these different things, building different economies around the material, around the use and the theory of land and how they intersect in new forms of value. And that also means that actually how, what's the UX of a contract where you are there to steward something and preserve and enhance all these multi-stakeholders, what's your responsibility mechanism in that? How do you build that in new ways? So that's, I think that also starts to change the material economy of where we live and what that building looks like. And that to me is fundamentally interesting as well and how, that, how we experience and interface with that building in a really radically different way, rather than as a consumer and rather than a consumer theory or relationship. We've covered a, an unbelievable amount of ground in the space of 30 minutes. How on earth do you relax at the end of a day? There's a question for you. How do you switch off? Do you switch off? Do you ever switch off? Oh, no, do, 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 I do switch off or I try to at least. It's pretty, I have to admit, it's pretty full on right now. And it has been for a few years. Building the end, we've been trying to do this in, through a learning modality. We've been changing pretty much how we govern, operationalize ourselves all the way internally through pay structures, everything. Because we, I don't think this is possible. You can't build this future without transforming how you operate as an organization. And so it's pretty full on, I have to admit, and it's been, and I also wanted to do this. I kind of wanted to prove that this was possible in really radical ways. And I, it's not just a bunch of architects sitting in a room. Actually, how do you build the polymathic capabilities to really build this stuff? I'm not going to lie. It's full on. I'm in the middle of it, and, but it's super interesting. And how to, to tell us a bit about the changes that you've made Dark Matter Labs. Oh, oh sorry, I wouldn't take credit for this. There's people like Annette Damani and various other people have been massively involved in this and obviously massively inspired by people like Amy Core at Civic Square and what they've been doing. So we're part of a movement of people and organism, uh, organizations, organisms that are doing some of this stuff all the way from pay for us is radically not about compensation to your market value is about how do you create almost a platform to allow you to do the work that you want to do. I'm not the best paid person in DM, right? So even though historically I talked about as one of the founders, so we transformed theories of pay, theories of responsibility. I'm like learning at the center of the organization as a theory, as opposed to traditional control mechanisms. So we've done how we make decisions as an organism. We're not sort of consensus based. Typically you have a centralized decision model or a consensus decision model. They're both shit in my view for different reasons. Consensus actually creates an average decision, which is non-contextual and the centralized makes an abstractive decision, which is non-usual. So how do you create new forms of radical autonomy with new forms of peer-to-peer -peer accountability in the model, which becomes really critical, which allows us to deal with complexity. So we've been building some of that stuff. We've been building, yeah. So that's just the internal stuff and as well as all the work that we can, we're really doing on the front facing side, like I'm saying, the carbon treasury, new forms of public balance sheets, new forms of funding arrangements to be able to fund new forms of public goods or civic goods, looking at new ways of contracting system level contracting for say a tree canopy of a city, how do you build to do that? So yeah, it's pretty, fun. I'll be open source it. So feel free, you know, like you can read it all up, but uh, people are often that we document everything and share everything um, to, to make a, make this part of a bigger move. Just for the record there, you didn't tell us how you relaxed. <laughs> Gosh, I haven't relaxed 
for a while. <laughs> what, I don't know. I, 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 I feel like I've been on a bit of a roller coaster for the last few years. I don't know. I think it's been, it's pretty full on. Historically, I used to, I, my, my greatest pleasure was role playing. I used to do lots of role playing and I, we used to play, there was a bunch of friends from my school. And we used to play Dungeons and Dragons and, and that was Normal. really just great fun. I think I learned more doing that than I did learn at most schools because I think it taught me how to see scenarios and, and positionalities in ways that was extraordinary. So that's probably history and then music and all that. But what is it, just switching wildly here, what is it that you're most excited about seeing coming down the line, Indy, in terms of, we've talked a lot about the challenges, we've talked a lot about how we need to change. But what are the things that are lighting you up at the minute? What are the things that are you making you think, do you know what, that is a really interesting innovation. I need to take a look at. So what's, what's lighting me up right now is that things that I thought were virtually impossible to say six months ago are materially possible. And the discourse and the, the kind of cognitive willingness to engage is now there. And I find that. And this is why I'm fundamentally an optimist. I think we can make this transition and we will make this transition. And I think that, I think, and I just had an extraordinary CEO of a local authority in, in the UK, a city in the UK phoned me up and I was like, and they found me on Twitter and they said, well, we've been following you for years and we like chat. And it was just extraordinary. The work they'd done, the people they'd worked with and how they were thinking. So I'm actually deeply hopeful and people are starting to recognize in a way there's no standing still here. It's time to just fall forward. And that's the only thing we can do is fall forward now. And that I think is fine. So I'm in a sense, I operate in deep hope right now, like underneath the big politics, the everyday stuff is moving. We're going to come back and hear more from you at future building the 100 year plan, but we always ask the guests on the podcast, what is your vision for the future? Now you don't have to sneak peek in terms of the 100 year plan piece, but what do you desperately want to see from a future? I think you've outlined an awful lot of it today. So I think there's two things. I think there are two fundamental components of a radical hundred year future. One is I think we will need to be a planetary civilization and we will need to be a planetary. We will start to talk about the planetary consciousnesses. We won't talk about eight or 12 billion human beings. We will talk about 500 life forms and as a part of a human non-human machine, institutional intelligence, the planet's consciousness will be our strategic asset. I think that's a kind of extraordinary breakthrough moment where we go from competitive theories of orchestration around territories to recognizing we're massively entangled with the planetary consciousness. And I think we ought to see that. That's not my vision that people like James Lovelock have yeah. actually charted that way forward in his never seen book. I was going to ask if you've been it. just influenced by James yeah, Lovelock and totally. Gaia Hypothesis. It's more than his Gaia Hypothesis. I think Gaia Hypothesis slightly led people astray, yeah. in my view. I think that was because of the way, but I never seen and the first third of never seen really starts to lay some of this out in a really profound way. And I do think we are in that moment of, I think, a radical transformation in our theory of civilization. That has to be mirrored by, I think, a radical transformation in our theory of self. And like all great revolutions, they're a reimagination of who we are and the world is. These, these are symbiotic stories. So in the next hundred years, I would argue we're going to be radically reimagining ourselves as a multitude of organisms, as a, as a spectrum of personalities, as a, a massively entangled with our biomes and both in terms of in history and in the future, we will expand our theory of, of those relationships and our cognition to be able to deal with that. And I think that is a kind of extraordinary way for us to, I think this is a moment of extraordinary 
reimagination of what it means to be human. And just to concretize that, Leonardo da Vinci's Virtuvian Man was a image of being human. And whether we want to talk about modular man, which is kind of the Cartesian theory of imagining man in, in a metric system and the kind of robot, what I call mechanization of being human, I think we're in a new imagination of the human as an entangled, entangled agent, as a point of agency and entanglement. And I think that's an extraordinary vision. So perhaps a little bit too philosophical, but I think hopefully in the earlier parts of the podcast, I've shown there are material yes. manifestations, but at the hundred year cycle, I would say those two big things are going to be on the table. And in that reality, the future will be made in really radical terms. And I would say we should be an interplanetary species, or we will be doing interplanetary mining. Uh, we will be doing ordinary things like that, but we will also have to actually massively transform ourselves as who we are as a species and how we imagine our relationship to the planet and recognizing we're fully indivisible from the ecological systems that we live with, as well as the machine systems that we live with as well, and the institutional logics around them. So this is the new type of planetary intelligence that's being born. And that's the vision that we all need to get behind. You blow me away as usual, and thank you so much for making the time to come and speak to us today. And uh, thanks again. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Oliver, I don't know how we're ever going to follow that up with another guest, really. I've, I'm, I'm very rarely left speechless, Martin. Um, I've got a lot of ideas ticking around now. I think an unbelievable amount of things that Indy touched on just need to happen. Uh, the way... The visionary way of valuing assets and looking at how we value the things that are around us and navigating this complex web of value in the construction industry in order to create a better future. I think, wow, you know, there's so much in there, so much richness in that conversation. What I could say about the guys, he never disappoints. Um, and we're so lucky to have him launching the 100 year plan with us at Future Build, you know, alongside a stellar panel that we bring into everybody. We've got Pascal Schmidt, Secretary of State, Brussels. We've got Gemma Jerome from Building with Nature. And we've got Katrina Brady from the World Green Building Council, all giving us their take on the 100-year plan. What is our, our aspirational next level 100-year vision for how we need to shape everything that we're doing now? And how do we really achieve and accelerate towards that future? Because I'm not convinced that we've actually got a plan at the moment. I know we're slightly biased. I would say it's probably one of the the sessions to look out for on the Future Build Conference. Um, so, you know, make sure you come along. It's on the Wednesday at uh, about four fifteen. So, and if you don't, we will be putting it on demand. And saying that, if you enjoyed today's podcast, uh, please share, subscribe, and we will bring more inspirational people like Indy to you very soon. Join our community to stay up to date with all things FutureX. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.